Welcome to Season 4 of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change because that is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I am therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, working mums will continue to struggle, burn out, and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. And when mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm learning from Dr. Charles Daniels, who is a therapist and TED Women Conference speaker, who was moved to tears during his talk as he described the struggles fathers face. He leads the organization Fathers Uplift. His approach to supporting fathers is multi-level, trying to change social stereotypes, providing community, and helping fathers self-parent. His secret source is how they make fathers feel. His wish for his children is to be able to choose purpose over performance. Dr. Daniels is a busy man and hard to get hold of. We did this short interview on the fly while he was in his car. Apologies for any background noises. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did. My name is Dr. Charles Clayton Daniels, Jr. I am the Chief Executive Officer of Fathers of Love Incorporated. And more importantly, I am the husband of Mrs. Samantha Fields Daniels. I am the proud father of Clayton Charles Daniels and Samaya Grace Daniels in Massachusetts. Thank you so much for that. I love how you phrased all that. It's wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about what role you do play now at work and home. And how did you get there? What was your journey to this place now? Yes. So right now I am founder, chief executive officer of Fathers Uplift Incorporated, where I am mainly responsible for the entire vision of the organization from thinking about how we scale, continue to do our work nationally, for thinking about the way forward in terms of growth and the type of impact that we would like to produce. I tell people all the time, you want to find your purpose, look at the place in your life that has caused you the most pain. And specifically for me, growing up without my father and a household headed by my mother caused me grave pain. Seeing the kids play at the park with their fathers. And I can tell you one particular instance, one of my friends, his father was helping him put up Christmas lights. 
And the dad, hey, can I put up Christmas lights with you as well? And he said to me, Charles, I don't have insurance for you, so you can't help. So there's been very subtle moments like that consistently reminded me that my father wasn't in my life. And that led to me just having this in my existence and my being, but also not knowing how to navigate shame, embarrassment, myself, depression, myself, how important it was for fathers like him to have the adequate support. So creating fathers that was birthed from a place of pain and I can say that we call that fathers up with a generous act of love for fathers like my own, really understanding why they are disengaged and helping them create and implement solutions to stay in their kids' lives when substance use is present, when mental health disorders are present, when homelessness, shame, guilt, embarrassment, when all of those potential barriers are present, we help them overcome them to stay engaged. So that's what I do and that's how I got there. Thank you so much for that. So let's just dig right in because that's exactly what I want to hear is more examples of solutions of how do you help dads who are experiencing this? Because you really outlined a very important and prevalent problem. So how are you helping dads? What are the things that shift them into being able to work through that pain and be present? So there, there's two sides, right, to our work. There's the work where we are essentially teaching society how to embrace fathers, but think about their journey in a different way. For example, I tell people every time I speak to them, I say, you know what? No father dreams of being a deadbeat when they're younger. Like when you think about it, hey, say, imagine a father now when he's a kid talking to his parents and his parents say, hey, you know, where do you want to be one day? He's going to tell him, hey, I want to be a professional of some sort. But he's not going to say, when I get older, I want to be a deadbeat, absent father. Who dreams and envisions being that to themselves, but also to their children? No one. Creating compassion for fathers that have lost their way is a part of our mission. And we do that by having people think thickly about their circumstances, but also about the fact that every father, every parent wants to be the best that they can be when they can't. That's something that we have to explore. And when needed, we have to partner with them in becoming that father they've always wanted to become. So that's the other piece. That's society. That's the other side. The other piece in terms of the direct through provision of therapy, the fathers to help them overcome their own issues to stay engaged, specifically at Fathers Up, we really focus on this concept that I created called self-parenting. Our assumption is that you can't parent another child if you're incapable or you don't know how to parent yourself. So our main focus is getting that father to become a better father to himself because naturally he's going to be a great father to his children, but we have to help him treat himself better. So you have that mental health service lens. And then after that, you have that coaching lens where we are partnering our fathers with coaches and peers to have overcome obstacles similar as the obstacles that they have challenges with. They can become and actually say, I have an example who did it. And if they did it, I could do it too. So really giving them access to motivator, um, an inspirational person, an example, but also someone that can give them guidance based on their personal experience. So that's the two sides of our work that we are currently engaging in. That's how we help our fathers through a society lens, but also through a direct lens, community lens. Great. And thank you for that. And I agree, it's important to put both 
to get my public health approach that I bring to burnout. It's the same. It's that there are all these layers and we need to address them both. But I also love how you mentioned therapy as one part, but then also moving on to coaching, because I also feel there is a difference there. There's definitely therapy to help us with pain and trauma, but I feel like the coaching also brings so many great tools that we can then use in our day-to-day that can be more helpful. And like you mentioned, role models and inspiration is so key. So I feel like you are, you're touching on all these things that we know from research are also so important to help with these issues. But it's so seldom that service is available. So tell me a little bit about that. How are you making this possible for the dads you serve? It's interesting because funders ask us, and matter of fact, the former head of Massachusetts Department of Health came to our office for a visit and she spoke to a group of our fathers and she asked this question that I remember that I will remember for the rest of my life. She said, you know what, dads, what makes fathers up different? So I can tell you prior to the answer that I heard that I thought that the fathers was going to say, hey, you know what, they offer great therapy. I love the resources that they provide me. I thought they were going to say a whole bunch of other things. But what they said really shocked me, but it taught me a very important lesson. One father raised his hand and he said, you know what, I can get therapy anywhere. I can get coaching anywhere. It isn't a service. It's how they make me feel. So when you look at the root of what we do, the foundation of what we do and the secret sauce, it isn't a service. It's how we make our fathers feel. And that's a piece that we're replicating. That's a piece that we're scaling, right? Because for us, community is very important. And if the fathers feel as if they got community when they're going to therapy or they have community when they speak to their coach or an ambassador, we've done our job. And and community for me is the essence of our being and why we're here. We want every father in America and abroad to feel like they have community. And that's extremely important to me. And when you make sure that the foundation of what you're providing is set in stone, the service will automatically work. So we started at that community mind frame. And to be honest with you, with society, what's portrayed about men and how men should conduct themselves that present as a significant barrier. Men should be tough. Men should be strong. Men should hold everybody else's burdens, even when they're incapable and unable to hold their own. So that's what we're constantly dealing with when we're fighting these systemic norms. So we think about why services like Fathers Uplift, specifically for fathers, a comprehensive public health approach for men doesn't exist. It's because systemic norms. We are trying to make compassion for fathers a normal thing. And we also want to make sure that fathers who believe they're not deserving of compassion because they can't provide physically housing, shelter, money, they're not inadequate because they can't live up to society's expectation of a man, which is really embedded and rooted into old, archaic thinking. So for us, we really focus on community. We really focus on making sure that fathers know that they're deserving regardless of what they're capable or incapable of doing. And that's, for us, is the secret sauce, making them feel like I'm special regardless of what society say I should be. That's so important. And I really appreciate that because I agree, we do have this messaging that doesn't help. It doesn't help mothers to be these superheroes. And it doesn't help when we portray dads as like incapable caregivers. So I agree, we do need changes at all these different levels to support the family unit to thrive and be healthy. We have this mental health epidemic in children. And and so again, where is that resulting from in terms of the stress that parents are going through? I agree. 
it comes at so many levels. So tell me a little bit more about your own journey to becoming an advocate, because I know lots of people want to advocate more and want to become advocates, but that in itself can be such a challenging role and can also lead to burnout. Because again, we know that our passions don't prevent us from overworking. So tell me a little bit more about what skills that you put into being an advocate and how you manage your own burnout. Yeah, for me specifically, I find myself taking the position of being a lifelong learner. And that means that there is no way that I will get to a place where I can't be taught or I can't learn anything else. When you take that approach, you allow yourself to continuously be surprised, to continuously learn, but also continuously be amazed by how much people can teach you through their own experiences. So for me, learning, open learning mind frame. And I think a part of that learning mind frame is the notion that you don't have to do it all to be successful. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, can you teach me? Can you help me with this? So for me, that's where I start in every situation. And I think also is it counters this whole toxicity approach to thinking that I have to know everything. I have to be perfect. No, that's not where I stand. So I keep that open learning mind frame. I can also say in terms of burnout, still learning with that. The work is so hard when you're an advocate that there will be moments where you burn out. But to be able to acknowledge when you are, for me, I found is very important because I'd rather be burned out and know that I'm burned out and I'm able to add language to it as opposed to be burned out and afraid to tell people that I am burned out and that I need help. When I'm in that position, the latter position, right, I will not be able to continue to manage burnout. The reality is the work is hard. It's going to happen. But I have to be humble enough to acknowledge when I'm there and lean on the people that love and care for me when I need it the most. My therapist, right, which I recommend that every therapist needs a therapist. That's just my personal pain. I have one. I have a community. What we give fathers is what I try to have for myself. So when it's time for me to support the father and activating his community and connecting him to community, I'm doing it from a place of being genuine. I'm not preaching what I'm not practicing. Making sure that if I'm going to preach it, I'm going to practice it. Making sure that I have community. Making sure that I'm humble enough to acknowledge my shortcomings and when I am burnt out. And also making sure that I'm not afraid to ask for help when I need it because we all need help. No man is an island. It keeps me in the position to maintain my sanity and to get the support that I'm deserving of when I need it the most. So those are a few things that I do specifically for myself. But the journey of becoming an advocate is extremely difficult, especially when you're proximal to the problem. Growing up in a household without my father, experiencing my own mental health symptoms, you can only imagine how difficult it is to maintain a sense of being and sanity when you're so close to the problem. So a lot of these things I have to utilize um, strictly because if I don't, um, I can fall victim to my purpose. And so I think that's another conversation, but I want to close this part of the question by sharing a quote that a CEO of a Fortune 500 company told me one day. I was so burned out. I said, Charles, we were overlooking the beach in Los Angeles, California, and we were at a retreat, and he was mentoring me, and I was sharing with him of how I'm just so exhausted, burnt out, and how the mission is really pulling me down. And he said, you know what, Charles? You have to remember that you're only a participant 
and a purpose that's greater than you. You're not the purpose. You're participating in a purpose that's larger than you. So all of those things I just shared is a participatory mind frame of being an advocate. There isn't pressure when you're participating. Pressure because when you think you have to harness everything by yourself and do everything by yourself. And I know when I get in that point, I am no good to anyone and I'm no good to myself. But when I remain a participant, I continue to affect change. So that's the mind frame that I try to stay in when I'm doing anything, when I'm advocating for anybody or I'm talking about anything. That's what I want to do. I want to participate. I don't want to be the end all be all. I love that. Thank you so much. The lifelong learning and being a participant in your purpose, not a victim of it. That is fantastic. Thank you for all that great advice. You mentioned they're a CEO, so I want to transition a little bit to thinking about other organizations and particularly workplaces. Do you have advice for leaders and organizations, what they can do to help dads more? Absolutely. So for us, I take my clothes to the cleaner periodically. And every time I get my clothes, the person always puts plastic over them. For me, the plastic makes me feel real good that my clothes were actually clean, but I also feel a little tingly inside every time I get my clothes from that cleaners. Like the way they care for my clothes means the world for me and the world to me. I can say that similarly for other organizations, my advice would be to start with the small things because the small things means the most for us. Customer service is very, very important when you're doing fatherhood work. For fathers that, you know, rarely engage in supportive services, and it takes a little bit more time to develop trust, we have to take a lot of thought in making sure that our organizations are doing the small things well. So, for example, if I have a father that I'm serving, am I wishing him a happy birthday, really considering the holidays that make him feel important? Is my organization taking the time to call him and think about him? Another example. When I'm serving fathers or I want to serve fathers, do I have pictures on the wall that reflect fathers in my program? Am I making sure that the environment speaks that the same thing that I'm telling these fathers? I don't think it's enough to say, hey, I want to serve fathers and we really care about fathers. You also got to put more into your environment to make sure that your environment is saying the same thing that you're saying. Because I see a lot of organizations say, hey, we support fathers, but when you walk into their office, they have pictures of only women in their office. No, you can't be a contradiction with your environment. Your environment has to be reflective of what it is that you want to do for these fathers. Because fathers would go into your office, and when they look at the wall, if they don't see themselves, it can really put them in a crazy position. Also, how is my staff really treating these men and families when they walk into my office? For us, we prioritize customer service. We really think about these small things. Make sure that our fathers feel important making sure that we acknowledge them on days where they need to be acknowledged, making sure that we say thank you when it's important to say thank you, making sure that we have magazines that reflect their interests in our office. So when they sit down and read, they can see themselves in the things that they read. They can see themselves on the pictures on our walls. All those things are important. So when I say go back to the small things, I really encourage organizations to look at the small things in their office and really have a question with the man that pro have a conversation with the man in that program. What are some things that's very valuable to you? Outside the services that we provide, what is very valuable to you in this office space? What's very valuable to you? But I can tell you to see their likeness is very important. A lot of men, if they don't see their likeness, if they don't see a reflection of themselves that the organization really cares about them, it'll be difficult to engage them. So for us, we always say, hey, focus on the small things. If we do the small things, everything else will fall in place.
I love that analogy too, the plastic on your clothing. It's true. Then what else do you think that mums can do in this space to be more supportive of dads to play a more active role? Wow. I think the first thing is for moms, but it's for all of us too. There's moments where um, we are triggered sometimes by our own experience with our parents that can interfere with to be present when it comes to trying to create some type of relationship with the father. We have a saying, if you're not addressing your stuff or aware of when your stuff surfaces, you can become a part of the problem than the solution. Um, so I think the first piece is really that self-evaluation, but also self-awareness is very important. Having those honest conversations with yourself about your own expectations of men, which is very important. And I think this isn't only important for mothers. I think this is also important for fathers because some fathers, the same strict views they have of themselves are the same strict views they have of other men in their lives, right? Uh, which can interfere with the way that they parent their boys or the way that they interfere with fathers in their lives, right? So I think the same is true for them. So we have to really take a hard look at our definitions of what we think fathers should be a hard look into our expectations of what we want fathers to be. But another piece of this, which is very important, is for us to always remember that we're not perfect. So how do we make room for other people's imperfections? And the first mm -hmm. place to start with that is to make room for your own imperfections. We tell people, good monitor for yourself when you are trying to figure out, hey, can I be a good advocate for fathers or really want fathers in my life? is to start how you view yourself and treat yourself in regards to making the mistakes. So are you the type of person that make a mistake and then beat yourself up for when you made it? If you are, I'm pretty sure you're doing that to other parents in your life, other people in your life, right? So how you treat yourself is a good compass for how you would treat fathers in your life, but also other people in your life. And I think the stuff that creates the most damage is the stuff that occurs when we don't acknowledge that it's occurring. The first place to start with that is to really get acquainted with some of the tough questions and the tough experiences that you've encountered in your own life. And it starts with your own places of trauma, your parents. Go to your places of trauma, your places of parents, and really ask some tough questions. You can do that with yourself, but also do that in the presence of a therapist or someone that you trust and love and really have some honest dialogue around those things. I think it set the foundation for something great in your life. Yeah, thanks for that. I think that this issue of perfectionism is such a struggle for people that burn out. So I think it's such an important one for us to address. And suddenly I found it helpful to read this book, The Adult Child of Emotionally Immature Parents. And it really uncovered a lot of these issues that our generation of parents weren't necessarily emotionally mature. That wasn't something we talked about, emotional intelligence or growth mindset and things like that as our generation we're thinking about those things more. So I think that's really tip. Tell me just briefly then to wrap up, what sort of future home and work life do you want for your kids? And how do you think we get there? I think society is really big on performance. And for me, just speaking for me, what I want for my kids, I really want them to be directed to the things that bring some joy and happiness and passion and purpose. And I think, that alone, their sanity for me is a priority. And if what you're doing in your life to make a living doesn't bring happiness and peace, I'd rather them not do it. And also for me, as it relates to performance, I think the same thing is true. When you are navigating and living in your purpose, performance becomes second nature. 
So what I want for this world, what I want for kids in the future, the type of household parenting experience that I want them to have is one where they're operating in their purpose and their purpose is making room for the type of life that they want for themselves and their families. I don't want my son and my daughter to be driven by money and driven by performance. I want them to be driven by purpose and family and love. Just the principles that's very valuable in our own family. That's what I want the world to be. I want us to become more a society of principles and purpose, more so than performance and money. And that's what I want. And who knows if that's possible, but I know for my kids, we're setting the foundation for that to be possible. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo, but are facing constant barriers and like you are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction? Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone, and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress. In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The peer learning collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, the group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan, do, study, act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. 
Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good, based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, Adeco, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever, in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there have been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a peer learning collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track, and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12-week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, identifying and operationalizing key change levers using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits 
that change systems. Leading with insight, creating the conditions for a culture of change, using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging, using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Control, you're a fighter. Push the limits and see it. You're already there. Told you we going higher. Ain't no stopping us. We're going in for the win. And we're gonna celebrate. Then we're gonna do it all over again. And we're gonna rock this place. Cause this is our day. I feel